everyone. This is Matthew Gates. I am a, a stand-in host for Jack Greenstock. We're going to have a smaller pattern, uh, panel this Easter uh, holiday. Um, so I guess I'll start off with the introductions for those who don't know. So Dr. Coco, please introduce yourself. Of course, then my mic wouldn't come unmuted. Hey guys, <laughs> I am Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I'm excited to be here. I guess we're a little bit short staffed, but we'll uh, we'll pick up the slack and have a good show nonetheless. So I got some some interesting things going on. I'll be able to tell you guys about, and uh, yeah, I look forward to the show. Spartan, how are you doing? Doing well, thank you, Matthew. Um, thanks for having me. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram. That is my only social media. Instagram, if you find it on anyone else, it's not me. It's all one word, no spaces. And if you don't do Instagram, you can also get a hold of me uh, as an email at spartangrown at gmail.com. And uh, I've got experience in commercial growing, home growing, synthetics, and organics. So I can help with all of those things. Very awesome. And Tao, I see that you've shown up. How are you? I'm doing great. Hello, Matthew, Spartan, and Dr. MJ. It's always good to see you guys. Happy Easter, everyone, and everyone in chat, or Passover, whichever is, uh, or nothing at all. Happy April 17th. So, uh, yeah, I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Keens on the IG. And, yeah, it's always good to be here. And, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's see what's, what's today's going to be about. I'll always take a good April 17th. Um... So I, I mean, in the past, whenever we've had smaller panels, it's usually a great time to offer suggestions for questions in the chat, to be honest. So um, I would be fine with doing some of that unless uh, somebody has a topic they'd like to start with. I actually have something I'd like to share, but I'll leave that for a little bit later. I'll just say, hey, Matthew, turn on your your camera. So it's going black screen on your side. Um, and maybe oh. switch to the other view, the, uh, I don't, the gallery. Gallery view. Yeah, gallery view. But, oh, there we go. I see it now. It's coming. Oh, so much better. Yeah. Everything's so, right in the world again. We missed the incoming transmission from, from Matthew Gates. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's an important part. Um. I, you know, I, I could start off. I got a few things to, to sort of announce. We got some some cool things going on this week at Cocoa for Cannabis. We just sent out a newsletter, um, but we're doing a show tonight after this show. Um, our award show for the New Year's Grow Challenge is going to be on the Berkshire Bud YouTube channel. And then tomorrow I'm doing a part test premiere on my channel and doing an after show on that with Mike Lynn, the founder of Atrium Lighting on the uh, Hemp with Gigi YouTube channel. And then on Wednesday is 420. So happy 420, everybody. And uh, we start the, the, the spring autoflower challenge on 420. So get geared up for the spring autoflower challenge, register for that. We're going to do a, a live show kickoff party on the Smot Poker YouTube channel on Wednesday. And uh, we'll also announce the, the winner of the Photon Tech XT 1000 Watt CO2 Pro Grower Love Giveaway, which everybody can still register for on the Cocoa for Cannabis deals and discounts page. So there's just like a lot there, a lot of stuff we're giving away and a lot of live shows. I'm doing a live show on Berkshire's channel. 
then on Gigi's channel, then on uh, the Smart Poker YouTube channel between now and Wednesday. Honestly, that is quite a bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I got that out of the way. So everybody's welcome. All those things are still very much open for people to, to sign up for or get involved in. How many? I'm just curious. Like, I don't know if this is like, <laughs> if this is not cool to ask, just tell me because um, I might be ignorant. But like, how, how many people um, sign up for those sorts of challenges? I'm just curious how it's grown so, over the years. We usually get like three to 500 people that sign up for the challenges. Um, fewer than that, usually, you know, keep journals and I should not be one to talk on this point, but fewer than that, actually, <laughs> sorry, keep journals through to the end. Um, but yeah, hundreds of people, lots of, of growers growing together and um, yeah, we got some cool prizes and stuff like that, but it's just a grow along, you know, there's no sort of like grow related competition involved there. It's about supporting each other, growing together, seeing what happens in different grows when everybody's sort of lined up and growing at the same time. Um, with autoflowers, it's particularly interesting. And a bunch of people are going to be growing the same autoflowers in different setups, you know, the same seeds from the same breeder. Um, so that's always really interesting to see. That's going to be super interesting. So you can see how how it, uh, the same genetics might perform under different grow styles or different medias or different, you know, that's cool. Absolutely. And I mean, there's differences. There's differences like in how big the plants get on the one side. But what's really interesting with autoflowers is there's differences in sort of how fast they're ready too. Um, sometimes by, you know, a not inconsiderable margin. So it's, it's fun to watch. The, the spring autoflower challenge, I think, is the, the greatest spectator challenge of, of the challenges that we run for that reason. I have and a question. Like three days, guys, you can still sign up. <laughs> Grow along, <laughs> join us. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's a it's a welcoming community, and and uh, it's it's always a great knowledge base. I was just having um, a conversation on Instagram, sort of about the idea of like, well, it was actually in response to the idea of like posting responses to questions and things like that and just sharing information in general. And somebody was making the comment that um, they sort of miss forums where, uh, you know, people screen names, people's, uh, you know, the, the, the people that you know by their by a, a name, some sort of moniker. Uh, yeah. You can have these conversations, long periods of time, you know, very heady. Everyone yeah. knew each other, small group. Um, you oh, know, you don't get that. Had. That, that's, yeah. that's exactly what we got. Yeah, if you miss that kind of thing, head over to Cocoa for Cannabis. We got the live chat room and I mean, and people just hang out there all the time and, and chat with their friends um, and, you know, a forum and the grow journals and the challenges and all the rest of that. So we do all of these challenges mainly to, to grow the community and just sort of build the community and create these kind of events that build that, that sense of community. That's always been one of my big sort of goals in in starting the cocoa for canvas website in the first place i do have a question from small poker uh why do light manufacturers have different square feet for veg versus flower under the same light um and he's he says so he's sure you answered this before i have it's a good question about lights um you know and a lot of growers it leads a lot of growers to think that they could you know, that they need to give less light to vegetative plants. 
um, basically when you have more space for the same light, you're gonna have less light everywhere because it's gonna spread out. And it, you know, in vegetative growth, growers usually don't target as high of a PPFD as they do in flowering growth. Like particularly in a commercial growth setting, for example, where the bedroom might not have really high CO2 levels. So they're gonna be growing in the bedroom at like, you know, maybe an average of 600 PPFD or 700 PPFD. And into the flower room, they're gonna be growing under an average of 1000 PPFD or 1100 PPFD with, with higher levels of supplemental carbon dioxide. So it, that's why. Now, if you had those higher levels of supplemental carbon dioxide in the bedroom, you'd be able to give them that much light too. You just don't need to. You, you just don't sort of have to push the plants that, that much with light during veg. So the answer is, is basically because having ultra high density light is less important during vegetative growth than it is during flowering. And, and you know, the only time this really comes into play is like if you're setting up a different veg space and flower space, because like nobody's gonna like shrink their space when it comes to flowering time or something else, right? Like you, you can't start in a five by five tent and then like shrink it down to be a four by four tent when they go to flowering or something. So the only, the only time that that really comes into play is like when you're setting up one room as a veg room, and you want to think about like laying out lights in that room. And so you would lay out fewer, a looser grid of lights because you'd be targeting a lower average PPFD. And so they would say, you know, this could cover six by six if you're laying this out in a bedroom. But in a flowering room, you know, you'd want to lay it out like four by four or five by five or something and get a higher density light. That definitely makes sense to me. Um, you know, I did say there were some chat questions. I do have one more. Um, this is just for the panel, so I guess we'll go around. From Sour, Sour Diesel Tangy, what's everyone's thoughts on drying? I'm going 70 degrees, I'm going to assume Fahrenheit, 60% for three days, <laughs> and then 70 degrees, 50% relative humidity for the duration of the drying cycle. Yeah, we'll, we'll assume we'll assume Fahrenheit unless he's like drying clay in a kiln <laughs> or something. Right? Yes. <laughs> go. Why don't you go, Spartan? I would. I'm not a fan. I'm not opposed to those temperatures, but I'd like to be lower. I would like to be lower on the on the 70 degrees. I'd like to be 65, 60, um, more in that zone. I'm not super upset at 70. It's just the warmer the temperatures the more loss to any volatiles. So terpenes, things like that, that are volatile, it's possible. I mean, I don't have every terpene memorized and what their flash off points are, but my general opinion is, is the, the cooler temperatures are gonna preserve those. So I try to stay below 70. I like to be 65 or lower. Actually, I don't like to be super cold though. So I don't like to, once I get down into the fifties, I'm that's the low end that I'm not happy about. So I like to be, just in the 60s, you know, that's where I'm more comfortable. So the 70s right on the border, I'd like to see it come down a little bit, but everything else looks pretty decent. I also feel the same way about the temperature being uh, a little bit, and, a little bit high. And I'm honestly opposite of what his, like his example was his humidity got a little bit lower after, as the time went on. I'm opposite. Mm -hmm. my, my first couple of days, I like my humidity to be a little bit lower 
So the first day of hanging, I like it to be at maybe 50%. And then I go and eyeball it and check the buds if I want to go two, two or three days with that. And the reason, my reasoning behind that is, is that the first couple of days, I feel there's more moisture loss from the plants. So it's like a, for me, I want to keep the dehumidifier that I'm running ahead of that. So it doesn't get over the 60%. And then after the first couple of days, once I see that the, the humidity or, you know, the humidity losses slowing down then i'll bring it down to a 60 for the long cure but i'm a little bit opposite of how he had he started out a little bit higher at 60 percent, and then he bumped it down to 50 i would flop that i'd be 50 percent after two days probably flop it to 60. yeah i agree with everything you just said there i think uh, and i i'd just like to add i think jack our our brother in absentia today would point out that and damned if I can't remember which it is now, but one of the terpenes he's often said starts to, to volatilize at 68 Fahrenheit. Um, I want to say it's myrcene. Is it myrcene? I don't know. Or I, I, I was mean? tempted to say that too, but it, it's Me just too. such, such a specific one. I would be surprised. I thought it was sort of a more trace one, but in, in any event, yeah, I'd, I'd want to be like 65 or lower. Um, if you're setting up a space like a dedicated dry room and you've got a good budget for doing this, like in a commercial facility, you would choose to, to target 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and like Spartan said, you know, you, you kind of want to drop the, the relative humidity, the absolute humidity, the moisture content in the buds kind of quicker at first and then slow down. So I, I like the idea of, of starting maybe a little bit drier, but then easing up as the, as the moisture content was sort of lost from the buds. But, um, it, you know, the other thing, if you get too cold or not dry enough, it's not going to dry. I mean, and so you know, we're sort of pushing a little bit towards that. At like, you know, when you get about 60 RH at 60 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you know, it's going to be a 12 day dry or something like that. Um, much longer or much lower or sort of moisture than that um, just stretches that out a lot longer, but that's a, that's a pretty good range. I also feel like in a lot of grow conditions, you know, um, and this is totally speculation. Uh, I might be right. And I'm curious to hear your guys' opinion, but like when you're coming out of a cultivation sort of zone, not the relative humidity, but like the actual absolute humidity, like on the foliage might be a little bit higher potentially from all that evapotranspiration and maybe the humidification or whatever you're doing. Maybe your ambient uh, environment is like this. So if you start with uh, the, the greater degree of, um, of lower humidity, you know, to really dry that out a little bit better, I think it's smarter. And I think also it might be great for like some post-harvest harvest problems, like um, fungal growth and that kind of a thing, especially really dense, uh, dank yeah. buds. Obviously, that's going to play a role too. Yeah. What do exactly. you think, uh, Tao? Yeah. Tao. I've really thought about that a couple of times because um, I wondered all the time if that makes the tomatoes close up harder all over and like makes the actual plant material retain more moisture but but i don't know so you know what i'm saying do you follow my logic it's curious i don't understand yeah i'm curious so. just to know has anyone i haven't seen any literature on this but 
do the a lot of people after the harvest do the stomata of the leaves are they open or are they closed if you i wonder if you cut them do they stand still i don't think that happens so yeah they probably either open or closed depending but i think like um yeah, I know the plant I'm can still process some. Question, it can do right? some few you, processes, even if it's cut. Well, I guess it probably still need light to. to you're taking off. off all the fan leaves anyway, right? You're not. Uh, well, I take off all the fan leaves at least, so that. Yeah, but the sugar leaves still have stomata. Right, and they have stomata, and they'll let air in or out. So if you, yeah, so I wonder, like, if you're in a really dry spot, maybe you want those stomata closed, so the so they like dry out slower, or would it? Or does it even matter if they're closed or open on how quickly? Oh, I wonder if, I don't know these things. I, 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 I imagine that it's going to be some are open and some are closed. I don't think it's all open or closed thing. It would be okay. sweet if it were. They but, would yeah, close to preserve water. Okay. Guys, oh, yeah, guys, it's drying up. That would make sense. Yeah, the, the plant would be triggered once it got sort of cut, the stem cut, right, and the flow of water into the plant got cut off. The plant is going to respond to that by closing its stomata right that's what i figured yeah and, pretty much regardless I'm, and it, gonna... so the last the last few days before you cut the plant if it's really dry the smile most likely be closed to try and hold the moisture too right anyway yeah exactly they'll, yeah. they'll won't allow as much to preserve moisture in the plant they'll try not to but there's also going to be a high vpd pulling the moisture away from them so right and so that plant material will still be drier if you do let it get dried out anyway so yeah, I think it's bad. And a little stress at the very end too, uh, Matthew. I think never hurts. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't pay. It's that curious that too because it depends on what your final product is. Because I know there's some old right. ash practices to let a, like they don't give a fuck about the flower, so they'll let the plant die and just start almost almost the point of rotting before they cut it down because they're just looking for the cured hash on that fucking plant. And then they say that's the best hash when you get it that way. You know, everybody's got their own version, but. Yep. But if you're harvesting for flour, obviously you can't do something like that. You you would want to, you know, har- you would want to like not, not, what would it, was it called? It's not starve because it's not food. What do you call? P- purposely dehydrate your plant before harvest? Yeah, dehydrate. Yeah, I don't know. I think if you're harvesting for flour, you're better off watering it to the end. But if you're harvesting for another purpose, maybe that would be a, something to consider maybe you should let the plant dry out a little bit before you harvest it yeah you know it's like in cocoa it also would depend on where your residual ec is on that um whenever you're you're fertigating or adding salts in the water um if you let it dry out you're going to spike your ec in that in the water that remains in the media but if you sort of flush it out, if you do any kind of flush in advance, you can basically stop watering at that point because it's the salt that requires, you know, frequent fertigation. It's it's not the water or the like the ability of cocoa, for example, to hold the water. Um, so, you know, a pretty common strategy is to to flush like two three days before harvest and then just stop watering um you're not actually drying out the plants because they'll still have access to plenty of water that's in the media um and you don't have to worry about it as much because there's not any salt left in the media sorry took forever to get to my mute button jesus (laughs) (laughs) but um it's still curious to me i wonder if anybody has done even in 
I mean, it wouldn't be a long, but you could say, you know, two day, you know, just straight, um, let it, you know, let the media dry out, then harvest as opposed to water event two, three hours before, you know I mean? A saturated media harvest as opposed to a. Right. You figured someone would have done saturated media harvest. Right, Spartan? What? You figured someone would have done that experiment already. I, he was, I don't know. Yeah, you would imagine. There's so many different factors in, the, in growing right. this. It doesn't surprise I'm me. I'm ready to has start an done. institution to perform all these experiments. I'm going to get a go. Well, I can tell you, just at the commercial scale, you'll, you know, when you go, when you're harvesting, you'll notice some pots are heavier and some pots are lighter. But I never really had the time in that situation to really compare right. that to each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure people are rec- maybe running into it, but I don't know that we're really scientifically, I wouldn't say study any study that i've seen anyway that's people like out there that would swear by both you got to water it right before you cut it it makes it way better and somebody would be like no you got to dry it out for a week it makes it way better if i just had to come up with opinion and someone said what's my opinion i'd say do not fucking water it right before and and just just from experience of of plants is like i don't know if i have a super heavy just watered plant when i harvest it just seems not as good i remember reading a long time ago about herbs herbal food herbs like rosemary thyme whatever yeah and this particular thing i read or stated that you want to let the morning dew dry and that's when the essential oils are at peak for harvesting for a peak flavor of your food herbal uh you know those things like parsley or oregano and Mm -hmm. whatever so i think there's something to it like yeah you want it to be dry on the surface i would think i harvested in the rain out of uh urgency because yeah i had to but i think that really is mold um tau i think that you know if you harvested the the herbs before that and like stacked them up someplace that would be problematic um but i think the other lesson to be sort of gleaned from that is you should harvest herbs in the morning not in the afternoon um but yeah after they're dry Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But just the yeah, like before the sun hits it. Before the heat. Yeah, the right. Yeah. Right. As I learned it anyways, yeah. I, I think the same applies to, to harvesting cannabis. Um, I, I wouldn't want to harvest yeah. it while it was wet, but God, no. it shouldn't be getting wet at that time of your, your grow. You I know, you don't want to dry out the plant so much that the, the flowers start to shrivel. I mean, you know. Right. You don't want to dry out the plant even so much that the leaves start to, to shrivel. If you're trying to cut down the flow of water through the plant on harvest day, I think that that's perfectly appropriate. But you also got to realize the plant's going to do its level best to maintain its sort of equilibrium in terms of moisture content within itself. Um, it, it will really work to not let itself get dehydrated. So, you know, you'd have to really sort of fight against the plant in order to like actually dry it out before harvest. But I think there's a difference there and, you know, just cutting off water a couple days in advance, because if it's not suffering from a a high EC situation, the plant will have plenty of water to to get through a few days. I'm reminded that um, when we were growing Gerber daisies, uh, we would... um, not irrigate the plants for or as much we still irrigate them a bit but we wouldn't irrigate them nearly as much and then they would snap off the the crown of the plant way easier during harvest 
So little fun things like that. I'm not sure how relevant that is to cannabis, but. Is that going to make trimming easier, Matthew? That's no, gonna, probably not. Yeah. It's going to make harvesting a bitch if it's going to be breaking easier. You don't want that. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're at the point where you're using hemp in a combine, I don't think that'll matter much either. Yeah. 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 So, what else we got for questions? We do have one, or no, we don't actually. Yeah. We, uh, I've been looking at the chat very dutifully. There haven't been a whole lot of uh, questions. You have one? Yeah, I have an interesting question for you guys. Just get your opinion because it's, it's interesting and it's a, it's kind of a boring subject. So maybe we don't want to spend too much time, but there's a recent article even, and we have a conglomerate media source here in Michigan called MLive that takes all the local papers and puts them in one source. Anyways, on an MLive article, they were reporting on the regulatory body here in Michigan, which has just been renamed, which this is a win, in my opinion, just been renamed from the Marijuana Regulatory Agency to the Cannabis Regulatory Agency. And it was renamed because they now also are regular, the regulatory body for hemp in Michigan. So they, which is not so much a good thing, but so now they, they're regulating, you know, both sides of the plant, because I'm not going to say they're two different plants. And, um, but anyhow, they have the power now to just, they are just shutting things down and putting them on, putting them on hold with no explanations. Uh, for example, um, they just did this earlier with an issue with uh, a testing lab, which made sense. That's a safety issue to the public. But now they've just, this article was all about how they just shut down a bunch of product from just this one supplier. And they're calling all the, or they're using metric to flag items at all the dispensaries. And so all of their stuff is on hold. And when MLive reached out to the CRA, they said that uh, it wouldn't be for a, or maybe it wasn't, I can't remember who they talked to, but some expert they were talking to was saying that it wasn't for anything having to do with uh, safety or anything like that. And it was only a hold. It wasn't a something like where it failed testing because that shows up in metric or a safety concern. It shows up in metric. So this, nothing was flagged, everything had passed testing and they're holding it for who knows what. And it's interesting because the people are saying, how can you operate as a business if they shut down everything and you have bills to pay and they, they don't even give you an answer of, of why everything's on. Hold. Maybe the feds told them they had to shut it down because they were doing some black market dealings, Spartan. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. But then Maybe why they wouldn't they say like the collect some taxes? Okay, that so, kind of, that so, so, so Tao, if that were the case, why, why wouldn't, wouldn't the, the CRA spokesman yeah. say, this is a federal matter. It's being dealt with by the blah, blah, blah That's agency. Great. We can't, we can't speak down. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It just seems to be shady. Like, I'm not even in the commercial business right now. I'm a free agent, right? And I still think it's crazy to try. Can you imagine trying to operate a business under that kind of guise yeah. where they can just say everything you've produced is fucking on hold. You make no money until we decide to fucking. I'm sure give you a all reason. their funds are like, uh, uh, you know, on hold as well. And, you know, it's, it's they probably just, got just insane. Seizure. They probably seized everything those people own. I mean, most other businesses, you have some way to appeal have some you like you sit in front of kind of a, a body of or a judge or something to where you can at least get an idea of what you're being accused of at least this is like we're not even telling you what you're accused of kind of shit yeah that's the thing that bothers me because even in like a, a, a comparable situation that comes to my mind is a quarantine pest 
identification. Um, LBAM, or the light brown apple moth here in California, uh, it was and is a quarantine pest. If they find it on your land, they will shut you down potentially uh, following an inspection. And because if it, it, it causes so much damage that um, it's just uh, it's just not tenable potentially. Um, and so, but like they tell you, they have people come down, they tell you the situation. And I think there is actually support for businesses uh, because obviously <laughs> that can be lethal to a company. So they're not even doing that. That's amazing to me. It's and very duplicitous. It's like, or mandate. Maybe, you know, obviously we're all in bubbles. You know, we, we are around canvas more than the average person for sure. But to me, it seems like, why is it that we're always picked on at the least common fucking way? It's like every every move, left, right, center, you know, we can't use banking. I mean, just silly things. And, uh, and it's just like, it just compounds me that how can this kind of stuff continue to go on in the fucking supposed land of the free? Yeah, well, just look at where we were like a decade ago, though. I mean... I, yeah, that's has, true. I would almost argue I felt more free, though. I could almost argue I felt more free. Yeah, yeah, but the, I mean, hopefully we're in a transition period, and we can all sort of sense that. Hopefully, the the end result of this is is something that we're all comfortable living with. There's definitely, you know, signs that it may not work out that way. Um, well, I almost think this is not not the anarchist to me or whatever, but it's like I almost. I almost want to see it fail. I, I almost kind of cringe when I see them, like I saw California, like make those moves to like, oh, we're going to remove all these fucking uh, taxes that we shouldn't have in the first place to make it so that you guys can have a fair shake. And, I, and I'm almost thinking, why don't you just let that fucker fail? Let all the fucking legal shit fail and say, there, you get no money anymore. How about that, you idiots? You get nothing. How about that? And just let it go back well, to the fucking you know, there may be. Maybe moderately more sort of, <laughs> I don't know, um, productive ways to, to approach legislation. Yeah, but you know, there but really yeah, is a corporate frustration. It's a corporate business socialist setup in, in our country. They, they bail out big banks, big corporations, businesses, but the little guy, well, I guess they sometimes get him bailed out, but it just seems a little uh, lopsided. But, um, yeah, they should have let and, – and half of the operators, like in Canada and stuff, they weren't in it to even try to make money. They were just – these CEOs saw the opportunity to get, a, like, uh, even a shell business going. They weren't trying to make profits. They were trying to make money, and then they dropped out and had all their money and let the businesses – whatever happened. A whole bunch of them got bought out and stuff. But, yeah, it's yeah. – it's uh, it, it has all the uh, – you know, now it's regular business. Yeah, no, for sure. There's all sorts of problems with capitalism. And some of them are exacerbated by, in well, in the cannabis market particular. And some of them are unique to the cannabis market. But a lot yeah. of them are just sort of like general BS. That Same story, new paint job. Yeah. But just to like, I don't want to spend too much time on it. But just to wrap it up, I kind of just wanted your guys' opinion because it's a double-edged sword with this. It's like, I understand regulation is there for safety. And if there's a safety concern, by all means, they should be able to pause it like right now and stop it immediately. So 
you know, less harm gets to the end or less potential harm, even though that's really an argument too, but less potential harm could get to the consumer. I think we do need something that can react that fast, but then to be able to just sit there and say nothing, I don't know. I think, I don't know. I think that it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I don't want to say there should be no regulation, but I think there should be kind of checks and balances or something or some kind of a, yeah, it sounds like there's well, not a lot of good faith or a lot of confidence in good faith on on probably both parties. So, no social trust. Yeah, yeah, there's no social trust there that that they need time to investigate or something like that. You know, I mean, who knows? But it, it, it. it's yeah, I don't know. All right. On a different note, I got a question from Matthew Gates actually. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know how a lot of us do the clone from a clone from a clone, like, and we don't keep like a mother plant very long. So there could be like a lot of time that that clone was cloned. And I was wondering like, if during that time period that that clone experienced spider mites at some point, and during that time period it experienced drought and whatever, and supposedly those things um, will, uh, I guess turn on certain genes or you know activate certain genes. Are they activated for the extent of the entire cloning of the rest of that life of that clone? Okay, so there's a couple of things in there, but that's a really really cool question because it's a it's a question that I actually have asked myself a lot, and um, uh, I do. I do lack some level of genomics understanding. I think there's a little epigenetics maybe going on there, but uh, to, to, I think part of what you're saying, but in general, like defense responses, defense signaling, immune pathway signaling, um, can, it can start, you know, within like a couple of hours of detection, whatever the, depending on, you know, what it is and other factors. Uh, And it can last a few more hours. It can last like um, in order for it to complete the whole process, it might start in a local area and be, you know, and and the signal gets transmitted throughout the plant, but gradually over time, um, maybe even for multiple days in some cases, or at least the fallout of some of those processes might last up until that point. Um, So it's transitory, not like our inflation currently. Yeah, like it, it won't, uh, it it won't stay forever um, because the defense response is costly. So plants, the sort of the ecology of a lot of plant defense basically is like you've got a fine. This is how it's understood, at least. Um, there's a finite pool of resources. The plant can't do everything at once in the same way because just like you can't use 100% of your muscle strength, or you'll like rip your <laughs> the threads of your own sinew away from itself. You know, you have to have some moderation there. And so that basically uh, comes down to this sort of selective receptor response system. But if they were to prime and then continue on for it, like just stay primed in that way, the things that allow the plant to defend in one context might actually make it vulnerable in another context. In Uh, the same way that if you make a material one way, maybe we can break it in this way easily, but not in this way. Right, Um, right. But what if we looked at it, I'm not strong here either, obviously not my strong suit here either, but what if we looked at it through the lens of epigenetic changes and maybe the stress was long enough to make an epigenetic change to the DNA 
that could continue on through clone after clone after clone after clone if it that's was that's not what causes change. epigenetic change though epigenetic change is going to be random copying yeah. error in, in the but isn't it triggered cell. by some kind of outside stressor or or is it something more like it's a yeah. I know there's examples of like histones and chromatin folding, but I would not be able to tell you about that in depth. But I, still, I don't think that's really. Um, I think, yeah, I'm thinking of like. What about what about the what about the uh, the changes where it's like, uh, what do they call it? Where it's adapting to your environment, and they kind of then they say that's like epigenetic changes. Where if it's if a clone or a cultivar is put in the same average environment again and again and again it may take subtle changes uh, over time and adapt to that environment to be a little bit more efficient in its growth you don't think that's a thing there's like a neutral ecology factor there like i think there's like 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 dr i'll, I'll let dr coco explain his part i don't want to talk for him but i do know there's a level of like it's kind of like we started talking about like t- periods of time and like kind of quote unquote like he was a random mutation but i'll let you speak about yeah. that more i think you know more than me on this the the things that you'll inherit or that sort of pass on that way even even clonally even through vegetative propagation and and then go on to durably sort of reproduce themselves um are yeah at the genetic level so you're talking about sort of random changes that happens in the the genetics of an individual through time and, and copying error basically it's not going to be a, a result of sort of things that happen to the organism during that that lifespan. Like Matthew was saying to begin with, there are certain certainly responses to things that happen to plants during their lifetimes, but they won't have a durable sort of effect. They won't become inheritable either in, in that sense. So th- those that's sort of how plants, if you take a, a clone from a clone from a clone from a clone, you know, well through time, the end of that cloning chain is going to be a little bit different than the plant that you started with. And and the differences between there are going to be largely random. It's kind of like, remember we talked about that paper where um, the, the researcher took the clones from like the bottom and the top and there were, there were different copy mutations um, between those. And and even the top ones had the most, which was interesting to me. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Right. Um, I guess because they're, I mean, yeah, I don't actually know the causal reason, but uh, I think you speculate on some of them, but I don't remember in the paper, but like, and even in that case, like it was literally the case that some of the genes related to like the the synthesis of certain terpenes and certainly the cannabinoid pathway, um, you know, were, there were mutations that happened. Did they, but in, in, at least in that study at that time period, in those contexts, um it's not like it lost the ability to make thc or had like other significant cool thing happen that was like interesting but like this happens over a period of time i think is kind of the main um sort of takeaway like yeah something like that could happen and uh, and does ostensibly happen in, in nature but um i don't think it'd be easy to track you know it's more of a natural selection thing. It's not kind of, uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah. randomly, it's ma- randomly changing, but the only, the things that are randomly making it survive better stick around because those survive better in that situation. Right. So it's We're, not so much that that's reacting to the environment that in that it's random change fits into the environment better. Right. Yeah, but Matthew, this, 
the change in those clonal experiments was so trivial. One couldn't tell without without doing the DNAs or whatever, right? Or is that well, know. you can't ever tell without. I mean, unless it's like really a catastrophic, um, you know, like mutation for something really important. Right. The the clone still looked like the mother and and smelled like the mother and smoked like the mother most likely, even though it was different. Oh yeah, yeah. But I guess my point yeah, is that point. Th those things do happen, and so it was. So you might be able to extrapolate, although he wanted to see more research, of course. Um, but you could extract. You could presume that maybe over under the time. right conditions, over yeah, yeah over time. Like um, yeah. this is like with. Uh, I mean, this is kind of how domestication phenotypes happen. I was having a conversation about that recently, or how like. Um, like the cannabis we grow now and the cannabis that evolved before human cultivation is starkly different and like all in like many in many ways and also like tomatoes and peppers and bananas and things so like and and, and they lose those traits over time because sometimes just because of time and and, and those traits don't get that they aren't uh, used they aren't important for um what we're trying to accomplish maybe or at least they don't they don't uh, stay around and um when they get lost like sometimes they're like resistance genes for example is what i think of like we grow it's not that it's necessarily the case that our selection pressures cause those to happen but essentially what happens that those weren't as important for this the the reproduction of the plant because we were you know making sure that they would reproduce so the pressures for those things go away so in that way, like maybe over time, something like that can happen and did certainly happen with our cultivation and will probably continue to happen as we cultivate. Yeah, like seed dispersal mechanisms that all wild plants have to have seed dispersal mechanisms and at the great risk of bringing up corn again, if humans didn't replant corn every single season, there wouldn't be any left. Corn can't propagate itself. It requires now human intervention in order to disperse its seeds. So, what about uh, birds? Don't they eat it and then shoot it out, and then there's corn growing somewhere else? <laughs> no, you gotta you <laughs> gotta try it and then remove the the kernels of corn from the the ear and then plant them. Really? Um, yeah, and someone it, said that's an alien plant brought to us from uh, <laughs> Anunnaki. There's that's a lot the of theories about like it. That, right? Yeah. It, for a long time, they, they were really unsure what it was domesticated from, and there was a lot of controversy because there's no wild relative that's anywhere close to the domesticated corn that, you know, Mesoamericans were growing. And the corn that the Mesoamericans were growing could not survive on its own. It was absolutely dependent on human cultivation. So Bigfoot brought it to us. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that just sort of goes to the point that the, what we select for and how plants respond to that are, are radically different and plant survival becomes radically different. I mean, corn became extraordinarily successful as an organism by, you know, engaging in this symbiotic relationship with humans to do its propagation for it. I mean, we feed it, we water it, we like plow over lots of other plants in order to, to grow it. And this is a huge evolutionary success story from the perspective of, of corn. You know what I mean? I always, uh, I always like to bring up that Lenape potato when we're talking about controversial domestication topics, the 
the potato that they crossed, I think a russet, some sort of russet potato and a wild potato from Peru. And um, it was really pest resistant. And when the farmer who crossed them, like decided to test them out uh, and, and, and eat the potato, you know, as you do, um, uh, he got sick because um, it had a lot of solanine and other compounds that we've bred out of a lot of solanaceous crops. Yep. Um, so it was pest resistant because it was toxic. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like modified or anything like that. It was just natural breeding. And so like, I don't know, like people think that only certain kinds of breeding techniques might have negative repercussions and that's um, not true. So. Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of like really close to being toxic compounds in your everyday potato too, and in True. tomatoes, and in a lot of those things, right? So if you start messing around with the the wild seeds or the wild stock, and and you'll get some of those genes to express. Getting back to cannabis, this is exactly why people are interested in looking for for land races and wild cannabis to cross those in because that is. It's sort of the stock of, of genetic diversity. That's the 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 gene pool for all these interesting new sort of genes and traits that, that we may be able to provoke or stimulate new cannabinoids or more of different kinds of cannabinoids or or disease and pest resistance, you know, issues like that. So those wild populations become genetic reservoirs of of sort of important information um and that's true for a lot of domesticated crops and i think they look through hemp too you know what i mean like the like the for example like maybe look absolutely the, the old hemp cultivars that they were just using to, yeah and you can find some weird stuff i mean not weird but they selected those generation at generation on purpose because they're growing them outside for pest resistance so i'm sure there's some good stuff there even though they grow super tall because they have long fiber, but I mean, who cares to breed that part out? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There might be some other gene that you could work with or some other terpene or some other, you know, cannabinoid that, um, yeah, or, or it'll just sort of work in concert in a heterogenetic sequence with some other genes. There, there's a lot of cool things that you can de develop when you back cross modern varieties to the wild populations yeah I, I definitely i i um i was i was reading uh, an article by medicinal genomics kevin mckernan about um this is about qpcr with hop latent viroid and this idea of like basically it's possible that probably actually it's plausible that there are some plants for which they don't have symptoms as much, not just because the viroid is latent and have has latency effects, but because um, uh, it could be resistant in some way. And that just because you are detecting it in the, um, uh, the test, essentially, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, it's super loaded. Essentially, I, I know that was not a very articulate way to put it for people who aren't familiar. Me, it's not. They could familiarize it just like they did with the COVID. 
Does that mean that it can't pass it on? That it's just sitting dormant and it can't really pass it on to otherwise healthy plants? Or does that mean that's well? No, I I don't, well, I don't actually know. To that's me, the case. I don't care about anything else. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, and that's actually a, that's actually a point that I I'm not very familiar with. I don't know if that's actually the case or not, but that did come to my mind. The other thing that came to my mind was that, which is kind of in the same vein, is like I think a lot of people should be concerned with being very cautious there but i could totally see this being like a nursery or breeding project to take that information and maybe use it for like maybe marker assisted breeding or something like that um ostensibly i mean i know that with hops with hops uh their solution was to um breed resistant cultivars and basically that has really truncated what people use um in a professional scape so although i don't think that that will be true for all the plants that people grow in the future i think that having if that resistance can be found um i think people will want to know about it pretty quickly yeah you know there's a a lot of crops that are truncated because only one variety is is particularly disease resistant and you know, it would be, you just gave me like a flash of what happens if that happens with cannabis. Like, you know, if only blue dream is like disease resistant to some horrible new pest that, that rolls through and like, that's all we have. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort oh. of shivering. Well, all the bananas. Okay with that. I, can, I haven't had a lot of that. <laughs> I chose so. that on purpose, but yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, that would, that would be tough, but that's the world we live in with like hops, with like bananas, with a lot of right. things. Not, we only get one Bananas are all clone, right? From what so, oh, someone told me that all the bananas in the supermarket that are like regular yeah. bananas are from a clonal variety. There yes. are definitely some variations out there, but yeah, like basically. The Cavendish yes. banana. There's yeah. other types of bananas, but they don't make it to the United States in large numbers because they don't travel well. That's that's one of the the big considerations for the banana market. You want to be able to to ship these things long distance in like slow moving boats, not in airplanes. Yeah, and it's uh, the Fusarium tropical wilt uh, fungus uh, four. Is it the race four? I forget. But yeah, um, that's currently wiping out the Cavendish. Yeah. Yeah, so they need to come up with a, a new variety of banana to, to replace it. The thing that bothers me, though, is that Fusarium is just so dang pernicious. Like, I mean, Fusarium goes after the genus anyways, many different kinds of species with yeah. their advantages, but they go after so many plants in general. So it's not like, I don't think. I uh, if you do something like labs, if they would, if we would teach these plantations or whatever you want to call them just to fucking spray their goddamn trees with labs every other day or some shit like overdose really tried a lot of stuff to stop this um and it's happened once before in the banana market i mean that's why we all eat cavendish bananas the the previous banana whose name is escaping me right now was by was it but well by all accounts it was more delicious and and better and it was uh you know, not an easy sell to switch to Cavendish, which is everybody, what everybody sort of knows is a banana. Yeah. Now I want one of those ones. Fuck. I know. I know, right? But go they someplace where they grow bananas, man, and go to a local market and just start picking up their, I mean, there's all sorts of cool plantains and bananas to, to sample in the world. I obligatorily have to remind people that I uh, have associated with the California Refuse Growers Association in the past, and um if you live in California or if you live in other parts of the United States um, and you're interested in this kind of stuff, 
they have a really like really strong community of people who um, basically like cultivate rare fruits <laughs> for people and to, to make sure they're still around. And a lot of them are, are damn tasty. I have to admit like the vanilla ice cream, the vanilla um, ice cream banana, banana that I had this one time. Yeah. They're blue on the peel. If I remember correctly, I gotta, I gotta talk to you about this off air map because we're, yes. I, I'm going to want to get some of these, some of these plants and yeah, grow some. We're, we're, we're all thinking about our gardens over here these days. So. Oh yeah. Very glad. Yeah. No. I, and yeah. Grow your own food, man. If you can, if you're able to. Yeah. I'm excited. I found that we can grow in Michigan. They're called vine kiwi. There's another real name for it, but uh, I can grow like a type of kiwi and you can just eat them. Like they're about grape size and you can just pop them off the vine and eat them without having to peel it or anything, but it's like a kiwi flavor. I'm like, Oh, I'm down. So I'm going to try to get some of those, but you got to have uh, male and female. So they pollinate. So I get like three plants, two females and a male and then start trial. So it's going to take about two years. I think it said before you get fruit, but I'm excited about that. Yeah. It's fun to, to work on a project like that for a few years and then finally get to taste the fruit. You know what I mean? That's going to be a tasty yeah. fruit. Yeah. And I just love Kiwi anyway. That flavor is just, I always loved it. Yeah, yeah. Everybody put your, your fruit and veggie gardens in. It is it is that time of year. Yeah, definitely. Well, we got snow definitely. coming in a couple of days, so I'm gonna wait a little bit. <laughs> <Well, laughs> We're biased with heat mats in the first place and humidity domes and stuff, right? For your, your spring starts in places like Michigan. Actually, on the note of like interesting little um, little points about cultivation, I did say that I had a small little thing I wanted to share. And so unless somebody wants to mention something related to that topic, because I, I know the feeling. I hate to do that when uh, you, you have it on the tip of your tongue, you're waiting patiently to express it, and then topic changes. So and then it's like, okay, have... now we're going to talk. And it's like, blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> I, I think so, you're good, Matthew. Thank you. Okay. All right. Then um, let's see here. So I'm just going to share my screen. This is a, um, this is, I'm going to, I have a presentation on Tuesday on the future canvas project FCPO2 channel, um, where I've been doing a lot of different uh, pest oriented videos and presentations where you can learn just about everything you want to know about them and a lot more um, so that you can be really forearmed to know about them and so this is sort of an advertisement for that, but it's also um, where I get to talk about some topics that are really important to me. So the presentation here is about fungus gnats in general. Um, but one topic I wanted to make sure that I went over for people, because I know there's a lot of people who are trying to be um, very ecologically conscientious with how they're cultivating, uh, to not harm and even to facilitate organisms in their environment that um, have been there for thousands of years and are really important for um, the betterment of that local ecosystem. And um, people don't know this, so I'm gonna tell you. Flies, believe it or not, are after bees, the biggest group of pollinators of, uh, in, in the insect world, which also means the animal world. And fungus gnats, believe it or not, are one of those one of those groups. So there's the fungus gnat that there's the fungus gnat species that we normally go after as pests, like uh, the Berdesia species is a big one, the Sayara, 
species. There's a few in there that are a problem and you probably won't be able to tell the difference between those. But uh, on the left here, there's a picture of various fungus gnats um, collecting pollen on these flowers. And uh, there's actually several different fly species in the, uh, the pie chart at the bottom right that they go over. They also go over a couple of other um, organisms. I think they have, yeah, beetles and ants and moths as well. Uh, but yeah, as you can see, there were a lot of sciority, which is that pink color, and a lot of mycetophility, which is that sort of darker purplish color. And those are collectively often referred to as the fungus gnats. So, you know, like it's kind of awkward, I know. And most people think like, how am I going to tell the difference? Um, but you probably won't be. But I just, I wanted to get up on my soapbox a little bit and say that um, there's like 2,600 species of these things. And just because you might see something that looks like a fungus gnat on your property, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna be something that will harm your plants. Um, I was really gonna show only one slide, but actually it didn't work. Let me, uh, it isn't, here we go. I was just gonna say here that, uh, where is it? What did I forget? <laughs> um, Oh, I'm stalling out. I'm forgetting. Oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah. So like, <laughs> uh, basically, um, I just want you to this the graph here basically shows like ancestry and descendants of the phylogenetic map. And as you can see, the green are the species where the larvae feed on like living plants. And um, the Bredesia group that I mentioned earlier is in this group. That's the green line. But as you can see, most fungus gnats, they feed on rotten wood and plant litter. They're not interested in your plants. And this is like the ancestral larval feeding uh, ecology. So like, and a lot of times fungus gnats even vector the spores of the fungi that you wanna find foraging out in the environment uh, because they lay their eggs and, uh, on like decaying wood and then they pass the spores onto that wood and they, you know, um, basically sporulate the wood. And the fungus gnats there too, eating the decaying wood, and there's a symbiotic relationship. So I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting thing. If you want to learn, obviously, treatments and detection strategies, uh, we can go over that as well. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, here's the graph I was saying. Here's the bees. Holy shit. Yeah. That's yeah. If you crazy. want to put that into perspective. Um, yeah. So the dietera is the flies, the coleotera is the beetles. And the bees, wasps, ants, and sawflies are the hymenotera. And yeah, so <laughs> this was just that a... many fucking bees. That's a lot of damn bees. There are so many. They're not just honeybees. Uh, a lot of, most bees are solitary right. and endangered. So, but they don't get the attention that the honeybee does because they don't make honey, which is sad. Um, well, they better the get blow, the Yeah, right. The blowflies <laughs> here at the bottom, <laughs> they're obviously the, the, the larvae eat you know, carrion, decaying animal bodies and stuff like that, but they're a critical pollinator. So I don't yeah. know. I'm not saying you should let that be on your farm property or anything like that, but, um, you know, just try not to be indiscriminate in your pest killing because you might harm something that's super important. And I noticed the lepidura are, are okay to, to fucking destroy. So I can continue to hate on them. <laughs> <laughs> Especially outside. 
especially if they're like, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many of them out there. So, uh, and a lot of them that are endangered don't actually go after our crops. So, um, yeah, but they're still really icky either way. <laughs> so, icky sure or they get the in my butt and make bud rot. So, one or the other. I hate either one. We should get someone else to do our dirty work. Like who? Drones. Who do you have in mind? Like miniature drones. I don't know, but like like predator mites for spider mites, and uh, maybe those nematodes. Wait a minute! Did you say spider mites? Let's not get spider mites involved. Let's not let's not breed them. Nematodes for the fungus gnats, then fungus gnat yeah. larva. Is that what you need? Well, Matthew was just oh, yeah. trying to make a case to save the fungus gnats. Yes, the fungus gnats right are our friends. That's my point. <laughs> just. Suck them up gently with a with a like a baby vacuum cleaner. Let them free out in the wild, Spartan. <laughs> no, if they're attacking your plants, I think self defense is necessary. So, but um, but you know, don't go searching for that battle necessarily. Um, just like use that. a little bit of context. So, oh, by the way, defense is Nova, okay, but but don't go on offense. Is that, is that yeah? Right? We can we can don't go looking gardens, for the fight in like the forest. That. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go picking fights with insects in the woods. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I play a lot of Japanese role-playing games, and that's typically good advice anyways. But um, Noah the Groa is here. I don't know if he's... Yeah, here we go. How's it How going, everybody? Uh, yeah, sorry I was a little bit late there with the Easter festivities. And uh, yeah, I'm here. And uh, how's everybody doing? Welcome, Noah. Oh, Noah, good to see you, man. Yeah, we were just uh, we were just talking about um, fruits and vegetables and breeding of uh, plants and and uh, the cannabis immune system before that. And I was on my soapbox talking about how not to kill every single insect and uh, trying not to be unreasonable about it. But uh, how are you doing? Do you have any cool subjects you'd like to mention? No, I, I seen a little bit of uh, that subject matter on your Instagram page. I was uh, looking at that this week. And um, no, I, I was just j jumping in with all of you. And uh, I was listening to the conversation when I got here. Uh, I don't really know where you guys are at, but uh, I can catch up pretty quick. I think we're right as a transitionary point. Say Do we see any up, questions? Catch me up because I'm lost already. <laughs> <laughs> I actually haven't been seeing any uh, questions in the chat lately. So if anyone does have questions, they should definitely put them in. One interesting topic that me and uh, Dr. Coker were talking about actually on a call just with each other was how a lot of times, or how interesting at least it is, at least in my experience and in his experience, that we really don't see a whole lot of... Uh, organic cultivation in the um, regulated regulated market at all and that it's like almost exclusively when it comes to commercial production it's almost i don't want to say it's guaranteed because there's brandon of course he's at the commercial scene doing organics but i mean it's like it's becoming a trend almost that nine out of the ten cultivation places that it go up are all like they're going the uh, what's the opposite of uh, I can't think of the word. I'm thinking neutral. Conventional? 
No, like uh, synthetic, not synthetic, but yeah, synthetic, but super clean, super uh, sterile. They're yeah. going like oh, more, mean, and more sterile. Yeah, because yeah. of the um, they claim. Well, I've my I hear a lot of people say it's because of the they have micro that you know Microbial they test testing. micro yeah micro yeah for sure. That's I'm a big sure. part of it, but it's also it's yeah, controlled. Really you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I think it's the 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 control you get because with synthetic feed you can control the exact mineral that you're bringing in at what time and at the same time um by keeping it sterile you're not worrying about all of the microbial um things that attack your plant that you wouldn't want there anyway and yeah. so it's instead of saying i'm not gonna try to pick what microbial to be that's good or bad i'm saying fuck microbials <laughs> eliminate that as an issue and try to get this down like it's almost like a scientific approach you know it I'm is saying? yeah it, it yeah. is I, I agree it is a scientific approach i think you know the some of the goals in commercial cultivation are a little bit different some of the conditions are a little bit different too i think as home growers we can make decisions to grow in ways that sort of aren't efficient in an economic sense or potentially in other senses too um, because we can pursue other types of goals, but um, it, it's going to be really hard it, under, you know, uh, at scale with um, intense light to keep up with production. And, you know, most commercial facilities aren't just sort of synthetic. They're growing with cocoa. Um, and yeah, there's sure. like a, a reason for that. Um, I was talking to a, a rep from a big light company that, that deals primarily in the commercial side of the market. And he said that, you know, 80% of their growers that are just crushing it are growing in cocoa. Um, and I asked him about like, well, what percent, what's the rest? Rockwell? He's like, oh, maybe 10% are, are growing in Rockwell. Um, and, you know, we do have a few organic guys. And I asked him, I'm like, are any of the organic guys able to keep up, keep up with the cocoa guys for yield? And he said, no. And that's, that's the answer. I mean, for a lot of things, it's just it's time to harvest and, and yield considerations. It's being able to be really consistent and being able to meet the plant's needs under pretty intense production con con conditions, um, you know, elevated CO2 and ultra high density light. And you can like set a formula or an SOP. You can set an SOP, a fertigation, we'll say a fertigation SOP that you can train somebody in a week who didn't know it before and yeah. they know how to do it. Good luck doing that in organic side. I mean, maybe you, maybe you do, maybe you can have it, but I mean, I think organics takes a lot longer to try to teach people the, an SOP, whereas it just seems it's repeatable. Everything seems way better, easily more repeatable when you have, could because you're in control of all the inputs more. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons that I think Cocoa for Cannabis, our website and the book and all that have been successful because yeah, it's repeatable. I mean, I write down sort of recipes and, and protocols to follow. I tell you when to, to water based on what time of day it is. I mean, not, not based on any kind of sort of conditions within the plant itself. Um, you know, in organic growing, there's there's a lot of expertise that, that's required. I often think that when I listen to Brandon talking, I'm like, this stuff's complicated. And I'm like good at it, but it's complicated. Um, it can be a lot, a lot simpler, a lot easier to, to train a staff for, a lot easier to train yourself for. Um, 
and you know to be able to really dial in conditions and and get really high growth rates really good you know yields per volume of space um yeah i just wanted I mean, to be i just wanted to put my two cents in for cocoa as well because I, I everybody looks at me as like the organic guy and that is I, that's how i grow at home and that's how i prefer to grow but in a commercial space i'd rather grow you know in cocoa and i've literally have grown <laughs> way more plants synthetically than i probably ever will grow organically who knows unless i start getting you know acreage or something <laughs> but I, there's definitely advantages on both sides and I, I don't know i see so many so much division in the cannabis field and everybody wants to pick sides on things and it's like there's room for everything and and i think you gotta look at it more like each each way and each method is like a tool in your toolbox that you can pull that's going to have an advantage in a situation that if you learn that, if you, if, if you want to continue to grow, you might be in a situation where that's the best way for you to grow. So I think it's better to embrace all the different ways and then, and then try to plug them into the best situation than it is to pick a side forever and just be, you know, laser focused on one side and, and never, I don't know, never experience the other sides too. Personally, I just feel that um, the sort of onerous taxation on uh, on uh, the product at a commercial level, I can kind of see the logic in some cases. But to be honest, I think that's a the fact that it, I, I I'm sure it's not the primary reason, but it certainly doesn't make it easier for um, them to maybe lower prices uh, or commercial groups to like try to be more affordable or um maybe even not be as intense you know well, see, or intensely chasing those margins i don't know but ju i just want to I mean, that's not been my my experience at the commercial level is at the commercial level they're very generous at the at those price points and it was very i mean like some of the stuff at the commercial level i was just like i was being shocked as a home grower be like i wish i could get it for that price it is pretty cheap when you're getting a lot of it at a time, but those price yeah. and you're cutting out the middleman, you're cutting out the growth store. You know what I mean? It's usually you're coming right from a supplier. Oh, if it's in that context. Yeah. Oh, I would agree in that context. Absolutely. In some places though, I think that um, it's applied a little bit differently, but you're, you know, you're right. It might not be the case in all, in all situations. And I, I do have a, a certain level of like, I don't know, resentment that like you kind of have to, you know, it's sort of basic business, right? There's a sort of competitive attitude, but um, I don't know, it gets the best of us sometimes, that hustle. Well, I just want to mention that uh, if you're going to start growing in cocoa, you should check out Cocoa for Cannabis and follow Doc's recipe or whatever fertigation policy because there's many people that I've come across like my first grow, I killed it. I did exactly what Dr. MJ Coco said, and they killed it. So I know that's a great resource. Thank you very much, Todd. I appreciate that. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, look, Doc, I'm amazed how many people have, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what they did. They're like, and it's amazing. They all did awesome, and they're all, they all praise you. It's awesome. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun for me because, you know, the cocoa does most of the work. I just got to tell people how to use it and they love it. 
and then I get a lot of the praise. So it's uh, I appreciate all the grower love from the Cocoa for Cannabis community and everybody else. But um, you guys are out there growing the plants yourselves too. So the praise goes to the growers. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, after all, this makes the community a community. Absolutely. But you know, the other thing that, that Spartan mentioned to me on that call that we had was that, you know, to the extent that, you know, home growers want to be able to, to get jobs like he had in the commercial industry and, and go into that side of things and make that your career, having knowledge on that side, being aware you know, most commercial facilities are actually growing in cocoa. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, a lot of them could make improvements in how they're growing in cocoa. They don't all have it dialed in as well as they could. They're not all sort of following our, our, our articles and stuff. Um, but if you get good at, at, at that kind of stuff, I mean, you know, the commercial facilities that I've talked to are always looking for experienced growers that, that can fill those kind of, of roles. And um, yeah. And that, yeah, that area is still like the dot-com area in the dot-com era where if you have a little bit of knowledge there's going to be you know a lot of facilities opening up that are looking for people with some knowledge because it's it's emerging and so i don't know how long that window is going to be depending on what jurisdiction you're in but um even if you set one plan aside that you wanted to learn cocoa in or or some kind of synthetic feed dwc whatever but it's usually a cocoa situation is probably your best bet of what you're going to see in a facility learn some cocoa and see if you can, you know, you can even grow a clones of the same plant next to each other, one in cocoa and one in the way that you are now and, uh, and see the differences. And maybe there's uh, it'll just give you that, that experience. So you're not so much informed material when you walk into a place. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I, I am enjoying this topic, but I, I feel a little bit sort of like almost <laughs> embarrassed by the praise. So um we have any other questions from from the the chat? We're sorry to call our questions from our chatters today. I have a question. Um, are you guys legitimately concerned that um, that commercial cultivation will continue and home grow will be stifled? Yes, I know that's a downer question, but. I mean, yeah, I think that that's one of the, the big issues of the MCMA, right? This is one of the, the problems with the way that cannabis can become legalized. And when big institutional players start making lots of money at something, they want to be able to, to sort of corner that market and drive more customers into that market. Um, and it, it's, it's duplicitous because, you know, if a big tomato started advocating to outlaw homegrown tomatoes because like they transparently just wanted to be able to sell tomatoes to all those people that are, are growing their own tomatoes now. Um, you know, people wouldn't put up with that, but there's a lot of efforts to restrict home grow that are funded by big cannabis that, you know, make up other excuses about why they need to restrict home grow um, in order to, you know, sort of put, put some sugar on that otherwise ugly pill. Um, 
so yeah, I think we need to be vigilant as home growers. I think we need to, to really pay attention to what's going on in the, the legal regime to not take the, the rights that you have or the privileges that you have for granted um, and to recognize, you know, we're still in the process of sort of crafting um, cannabis's legal sort of place or its place in our legal regime. Um, and there's a lot of money behind the other side of that, the, the big cannabis side of that, that wants to, to be able to, to profit off of this, both on the industry side and on the government side, um, both by creating sort of artificial monopolies or by creating large tax burdens. Um, and none of that's gonna be particularly helpful to the, the future of cannabis as a medicinal and as a recreational crop. Well, Thanks. I could say, I just recently uh, looked into New York because they just allowed I mean, they just uh, like issued licenses for growing for this year um, to, I think, six different uh, uh, cultivation sites. But they were all had to be previous hemp, part of the hemp grower farm bill to, to first get the license. And what's even more, wor what's worse, well, I don't know if that's bad or not, whatever. But and I'm sure it was a lot of money, and it cost two thousand dollars non-refundable just to fill out the application for like one of the one of the uh, you know licenses. But um, I'm sure it's more for other ones. But uh, the other thing that they the first thing that they said when the, the new what happened was uh, Cuomo got fired and the new mayor came in. She started moving on the the medical marijuana. I mean on the new recreational marijuana laws right away. And she said, the first thing we're going to do is have medical patients be able to grow their own. But she never defined it. They never passed it finally. So they still can't grow, no one can grow weed yet, but uh, except for those that got the commercial license. And they already stated that for recreational grown, it's going to have to be at least one year after the dispensaries are open commercially selling it. So that's the stipulation they already have in for New York State. So um, if yeah, as soon as I you know hammer out the medical thing, I'm gonna go. I might have to go get a medical card for New York State just so I can have that at least. Yeah. But yeah, but it's starting, and then and then again, how many people haven't paid attention to the laws anyway? I'll just leave it at that. Well. I just want to say there, that that's all true, and I agree with everything. But both both you guys have saying, but there's also a light at the end of the tunnel because cannabis is um, a little bit different than a lot of other industry in that we've had to have activists already to get to where we're at. So there's already kind of that network in place in each of these areas that has some sort of legalization, but they're kind of being watchdogs. And uh, they try to get the word out. I try here in Michigan to help in those efforts. Um, I'll share a quick story real quick because it looks like we have some time anyway. Um, one of the things I've done on my time off is I uh, ran out and I've been testifying in front of uh, local uh, municipalities. I was in Birch Run testifying out there to a uh, council that was trying to impose a caregiver ordinance. And that was a great one. We had we even had uh, some caregiver groups come out with a mobile billboard truck that was putting some unflattering pictures up by the street so people could see uh, one of the members. This is where one of the members flipped off the activists that were testifying on how cannabis was helping them medicinally. So we spread the word and it got to local 
news and all that good stuff. And we showed up to this and we protested before the meeting and we talked during the meeting. And uh, I stood up and shared my thoughts. A lot of people stood up and shared theirs. We packed the building and by the end of it, they killed the ordinance and now there's no ordinance there. So there's still, there's still hope. I mean, people are still, there's still groups out there that are, uh, you know, watching these things that are trying to be, to be done. So um, it's not like there's no hope. There's people out there still doing it and you can, and people can do that themselves too. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a lot of hope and, and frankly, Spartan, you're an inspiration. So everybody should follow Spartan's lead on this. If this is something that you. you're, you're, you're passionate about, which like, I'm, I mean, I couldn't even finish that sentence because we're all passionate about cannabis and we should all be probably equally passionate about like not going to jail for cannabis and being able to get jobs in the industry if we want to in cannabis and being able to grow our own cannabis and all of these things. But that's on the table right now in a lot of places. I mean, quite literally, it's on the table and other people are making those decisions, but you can get your voice into those conversations. Um, so, and if you're curious about how to exactly do that, ask Spartan Grown. He gives you his email address and everything else. And the guy's just a, an inspiration. Thank you, man. Appreciate that. And I don't know, it's like I get time in my hands. So it's like I can pursue the things that I'm super passionate about. And so that's, you know, I jump at the chance and I mean, it was, it was a bit of a drive, but I got, it was about an hour and a half for me to get there, but I got there and it was so worth it to, to share in a win because usually in those meetings you come out with, oh, we'll table it and we'll make some changes and then you got to go back. And it's one of those things, but this one, the way it worked out, it just got killed. So it was, that was a fucking win They're, Now they have to rewrite the whole damn thing if they want to do it again. So it's, it's going to be a while at least put out one fire that we know it's going to be out for a while. So that's, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna and like with any political issue, talk to your friends and family and other people that vote. You may you probably know people that are on the other side of these issues. I mean, you can do a lot of sort of that that local networking, and that's that's how politics happens. That's how you know movements get built for for organizations. I mean, we see a lot of that going around for all sorts of different movements in our country right now. But let's keep feed into the cannabis movement. And if there isn't one, you can create one. Social media makes things so easy to start organizing groups. And uh, before you know it, you have a movement. And it's a snowball effect for sure. You're not going to see necessarily anyways. Um, that's sort of an immediate response. But like, you know, a bunch of tiny hammers, you know, will, will move this mountain. And um, I definitely emphasize with the sentiment. And sometimes I even share it that uh, I want to turn my back away from that social or political process because it's frustrating or um, sort of seemingly, um, you know, lacking in progress. But um, that's not like Dr. Coco says, it's not actually how the change happens. Um, and I think that uh, uh, retreating away from it just allows other people, other entities and, and agents with their own agenda um, to, to fill that space. So like a beneficial microbe, you want to, yes, you want to, so you want to be man, there. <laughs> you want to keep agree that from more. happening. That is so fucking true. It's amazing how true, man, I go to talk to lawmakers and the only voice they've heard about cannabis is the other side, like a snake in the ear. And, and they just, you know, regurgitate the one thing they heard. And you're just like, it's like when people, you know, come to you with bro science and you're like, no, 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 stop. No, <laughs> it's like, 
show me a, one scientific book that says any of that. And, you know, you have to just fight through all that misinformation. It's almost worse, you know, than if you just got to them before you said, have you heard about cannabis? And they said, no. And then you could, you know, at least give them some information that they could check into if they wanted to, but they don't check oh, in. I would love it, to meet that sure. person. I want to meet that 100%. person. You heard about cannabis and they say no. And I'd be like, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let me tell you about it. Yeah. I have some movies you should watch. <laughs> no, yeah. um, I 100% agree with that. And like, I mean, you saw, it's part I know that you saw, I think everyone on this panel, I think, saw the, uh, the post I made like a few weeks ago where that, um, I even forget. Uh, what level of the government this person's title can be ascribed to but she was saying that um, she was like <laughs> she, I don't know man either it's, she was proposing that if people were to sow cannabis seeds in like wheat fields you get some sort of um, uh, plant hybrid and <laughs> yes yeah. I saw that Matthew. She that was, was like, amazing it doesn't work is the weed under yeah. the ground? And I plant my wheat with a with a weed and the wheat uh, combined to make a weed and wheat. Yeah, wheat yeah. weed. Yes. I think she was thinking maybe it was perennial. I the don't weedies. know, but that was way. This there's obviously some ignorant people on the subject, like to the extent of mind baffling ignorant. It was a ama- yeah. I I um. I mean, like, there's two there's two main ways to respond to that, right? Uh, one is that the person just doesn't know a lot about agriculture, or um, the person is like intentionally <laughs> intentionally misrepresenting it. But in either case, that's um, you know not very endearing. I, I disagree. Uh, <laughs> I think there's only one way to respond to that. We all have to try. We all have to go out there, take some cannabis seeds, plant them in wheat fields and see what you're happens. Right. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You know what? I've never heard <laughs> this experiment. Let's start. do it. Yeah. <laughs> like this is um, I'm excited about <laughs> it actually now. I'm like, I see this going well. No. <laughs> this is a consummate scientific approach that I can get behind. Yeah, you know, maybe we can get some funds for it. Maybe we could sell one less F35. You know, what, we Maybe should make that, sure fund the entirety of the the breeding no, program. We should for the pop the years. seeds. We should pop the seeds inside and make sure we sex them and make sure we have a male and female that we put out next to each other, just so we can have both sex represented. And then do this oh, yeah. at least in every state in every county, at least one time when it's really windy. I think we have to run idea. some controls because we need to know if the if the offspring have a wheat. Oh, mother excellent! A, a, you at, know, at least twelve or thirteen, or the other way around. That Don't you think really at least important. 12 or 13 different com- at least? Yeah. You know, we, what we should do, the places where that's not allowed is where we should do the experiments because they're going to be a yeah. better, yeah. And then, then we'll just they the can use that, that data okay. to craft new law. They need that the most. So we need to do it in yes. this place. <laughs> uh, good times. Yeah, no, there's a lot of, a lot of sort of baffling ignorance out there. Um, and you know, when you meet baffling ignorance, try to be kind and just try to explain how you see those issues in the world. But yeah, you can chuckle to yourself later. Honestly, this is going to sound terrible of me, but I honestly, in my head, when I, when I get to people like that, that I know have no idea about cannabis, but they have the wrong idea about cannabis and then they're a lawmaker or something like that, or a council member, I honestly treat them like my kids when they were in middle school 
and I was giving them the drug talk. You know what I mean? It's just like, right. I'm open for any question you have. You know what I mean? Anything. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be mad at you. <laughs> and, you know, and this is the, this is these, safe these, space. yeah, this is safe space. <laughs> and the, these are the facts that I can tell you. And this is my experience. I'm not only am I a home grower, I did it commercially, blah, 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 blah. I'm an educator in the field. I'm just here to give you the right information. Please ask me any question. When you come to them like that, they're interested. They're engaged with you. But if you come to them as like, you stupid idiot, this is the dumbest thing. You know, they close down. They're not listening to a word you say. So you got to be a little smart. How do you respond when they hit you with? So what's your take on all these, you know, cannabis plants growing in with the wheat and creating, you know, wheat cannabis hybrids that's getting into our, our kids bread supply? I'd say. Please show me where that happens because that's scientifically <laughs> impossible. And if you can show me how that isn't scientifically impossible, I'm super interested in this thing. Yeah. That's, how I, that's how I would say it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that far off the wall, I'm sure, from some of the questions that you actually feel. Oh, just ridiculous stuff. You know, even though, even like the idea of um, like the, the, they had no like insight on how, how big a plant can be or or things like that. Yeah, these are the you people guys, that are setting the plant counts, right? Yeah. I was like, you, yeah. I was like, you understand that your plant counts really mean nothing as far as the quantity that I could harvest. In fact, a plant I can get outside to harvest, you know, 10 times what I can on inside in a smaller space. And to how I can do that is just grow it longer, which you can do with these plants. Cause they have a, you know, they're determined by their light cycle and they're just look at you like doe eyed, like what? And like, so this doesn't really, this is a regulation that really means nothing. If you had like a square footage that would like they've done in California, not that I'm advocating for that, but it does make more sense on, on how much you're, you know, it's more of a restriction on the quantity that's going to come out of there than an arbitrary right. plant count. No, arbitrary plant counts just sort of, you have to plan for them and then grow to them or whatever, but yeah, they don't make a lot of sense. And they've always seemed to be passed by lawmakers that, that, don't really understand how plants grow and not just this plant but like plants because like most plants you can grow them to be larger or smaller i you know i guess there's a lot of perennials that eat or annuals that you wouldn't but um but still they don't understand the point that like physical space is your limitation it doesn't matter how many plant count is in there well, well i guess were, yeah sorry for my example again but corn it, it would matter I mean, if you had a plant count of like, you know, That's 20, true. you can't veg, you can't veg corn for long. Yeah, it's just going to be one year of corn you're going to get from each corn plant anyways. And, you know, it may be just a, a simple worldview of, of cannabis like that, um, where they're thinking of it like a, a crop like that. But I, I, otherwise, it doesn't make much sense. I mean, it should absolutely be square footage restrictions, not, or, you know, area restrictions, not uh, plant count. Yeah, you're right. They're thinking of, of like a vegetable plant that they put one seed in every year. They they do that. They get the same result. But that's yeah. not really. But that's not cannabis. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. It's more like you know growing a peach tree or something. If you have a really big one, you're going to get a lot more peaches than if you have a, a tiny little baby one. A dwarf one. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to answer Rosinante's question. He asked it just a second ago. Will mass commercial production of cannabis um, kill home grow? You know, I think it'll change it to a certain extent. Um, but I know a lot of people that still brew their own beer, even though the mass legalization and mass production of beer is pretty much a thing. I mean, you can go and, 
and buy a six pack for a lot less than <laughs> some of my friends spend brewing their own beer. Um, but you know, they'll swear by the quality and the experience and it's their hobby and it's something that they, they really en enjoy doing. Um, and damn, yeah, they're making better beer than what you're going to buy in the, the liquor store. Right. So it's going to be the same thing to a large extent, I think for, for home grower, once it, once mass production on the commercial side reaches in sort of the scale that, that the prices really come down a lot. Um, it, it would be more expensive for you to grow your own cannabis potentially than to buy it. Um, but it, you know, it's more expensive for you probably to grow your own tomatoes in a lot of situations. And, and I was going to bring that same thing up in peppers. People still grow peppers like crazy. Yeah, because there's other benefits. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to be growing some peppers right now, uh, very soon. In fact, in a, in a few months, I'm going to be planting some my buddy rare, exquisite exotic peppers are they are they ornamentals or are they i will probably have to do a few of those um just so that i can make videos about the process because it's long <laughs> and onerous uh but yeah um my buddy baked he ordered like a whole variety of ornamentals and we're gonna pop them all so it'd be cool to see i would love to to, to help you out with that um did you have something you want to say dr coco well i was just still thinking about that you know the, the group that it's gonna hurt the, the quote unquote home crew crew or the, the people that are in our community that that would, would hurt are the people that are growing in the black market. The people that are doing sort of, you know, um, black market grows of one size or another, because the there's still a lot of room for, for doing that, making money in today's legalization regime. I mean, everybody that, that complains about taxation fails to recognize how much space that creates for the, the illicit market. Um, when the price collapse in the legal market, you're not going to be able to, to sort of make a supplementary living, probably growing your own cannabis. Um, but I, I still think people would grow their own for themselves. I don't think you're going to make a lot of money growing for others at that point. I have a different view. Um, there's, a, I've thought a lot about this quite a few times. I, uh, I know a lot of people that have been involved in black market you know, their whole lives and stuff and. Uh, you can just take a look at the market over in Oregon right now. It's uh, pretty low, but I think that if they, they were to make it like federally legal, like basically like, like whatever, like avocados or oranges, or let's just, you know, right. give an example. Yeah. I think I, I don't, I don't even think that I think for sure it would crush home growers and I don't think it would just crush home growers. I think it would probably crush a majority. I would say 50% plus of the legal market that exists right now because the real reason and the United States would lose a lot of money. Well, and what I'll do you mean by why. home growers there? Are you thinking about okay. somebody like yourself no. that's growing a bunch of plants or somebody like me that's growing, you know, one tent and I'm consuming uh, most of mine myself? Across the board because, uh, like, check it out. You can grow tobacco in a lot of places. Do you know that? Well, you don't know anybody who does. Um, people don't, don't grow tobacco. I mean, and this is a generalization. Of course, people do, but they don't. And uh, like, you, like you said, you know, if you guys – brew beer i guarantee you if you a thousand people listen to this podcast there's maybe a few five yeah. that, 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 that brew beer right so and it's and it's going to impact it to that level 
And the main thing that the United States is going to lose is going to be the infrastructure. Hold on, though, before you I wonder if the number of people that homebrew outnumber the number of people that grow their own cannabis. I was thinking, oh, no, no way. No way. I I don't know about that. I would say a better comparison to that, though, is tomatoes or peppers, because we're talking about plants more than growing is more involved than just growing a plant. Hold on. I think you all are underestimating estimating the power and the greed of the federal and state governments to continue to tax it to the point where the black market guy might have a chance to make money. Well, that's exactly what I said. I mean, the the high taxes are creating the space for the black market right now. That's right now. But I think it will continue even if the federalities get involved because they'll want a piece of the pie, won't they? Yeah, I I think that that's entirely possible. Well, they'll definitely at least because of legal restrictions. They were already talking at what was it, 6% already or three or 6%, somewhere in that range. So they're going to absolutely put another piece on the pie, which is going to keep the prices up a little bit. Well, that's kind of why that last law that just got passed from the Senate or the House or whatever that was, I sat down and read that. And it, it basically was kind of like to decriminalize it. And the reason behind that, and you would think, oh, yeah, that's what the way it should be. And it probably should. But what that does is makes it so it can't be like avocados and oranges because they won't be able to ship it over the seat, you know, with the way that law was written. Because that's how a lot of the money is going to be made. A lot of the money that's made in the United States from growing weed is not what you think it is. It's not from the guy growing the weed. It's from the infrastructure. It's from the guy that grows the grow lights. It's from the nutrient company. It's from the land that gets taxed and gets grown on. The guys that build the grow ops, etc., and you that's lose and all of it. Right? You lose that's, all of that if it gets shipped overseas, yeah, that's and that's good, why they're not going to do that. Yeah, that'll be but a do good you metric. Think, if you just look at grow stores, as you see grow stores close, that's telling you the growers, the home growers, are going away in those areas. And I think those will be the first ones you'll see if that's going to be a squeeze and people get out of it. You're going to see grow stores that immediately start because I don't know around me. I got like two, three in my in my town alone. Yeah, but you have really uh, good yeah, laws there's other there. things that could drive the, the demise of brick and mortar retailers, though, Spartan. True. I mean, I think. Yeah, it already that. has in my area. Like, when uh, it comes to yeah. our stuff, though, it's so heavy that I think it's kind of like a little bit of insulation, whereas that there's still an advantage to be able to go into a place and not pay shipping. 100%. I can believe but it. It's already, uh, this, I, I guarantee you that home growers, okay, so let's just take for when. I don't know. When did Michigan uh, legalize uh, for recreational marijuana? Recreational was not, it was early. I mean, not that long ago, like 2012 to 2015, somewhere in that area. Right, right. 2008 was the medical program was started. 2008 was the earliest. Okay. So I don't know. I've never been to Michigan. So I can just tell you from my experience in the Portland, Oregon area, right off the bat, the price of good weed was $40 an eighth. It is much less than that now. That's because of the recreational legalized. So you can just look and see that that has already, it's, I mean, it's cut it in half. This is, I mean, you can Google this. This is, these are facts. So, and the same thing will happen if it becomes like, like tomatoes. It will, I would, I would, I would think that it would do the same thing. So like if the price of, of weed is like, let's just say 20 and eight for, for good weed, you know, it, it would go to 10. And I think it would, so. that's what, 50%. I think it would cut off 50% minimum. So what I see, I see, what I see happened here, it was kind of very similar to what you said, but a little bit different. So there was really like three price points. It was like the cheapest shit that you didn't want to touch. There was a small market. <laughs> There's a small market that was out there. There's a big fat mids market that everybody wanted. That was 
fucking reasonably priced. And then there was the upper market for the special shit. The upper market has stayed the same and all the mids squeezed way the fuck down and it's all the fucking bottom. So it's, it's great. I'm not saying the quality changed. I'm just saying the price has changed. So that is, a, you I know, think the top, the top part, point. it hasn't changed much. You're still getting the you're, same. Dude, you're right. You're right. And that's why I have been preaching. I, I could, you can look back at any of these shows I do. I always preach quality over quantity all day long. And you're right. That is right. Um, that's why it's important for shows like this to teach guys to build or grow the best because you you still will if you can grow really good weed at home, it will be cheaper. You're right about that. You are right. I'll, I'll give you that. That's just kind of what happened here. I imagine. Same here. You're right. The you whole are right. Price structure behind cannabis has really been supported by prohibition in the first place. True. I mean, all the prices True. that we understand have been supported by prohibition. So, to the extent that we don't like prohibition, I mean, we can't also then expect that the prices to stay that high. So, one of the big things that's changed with the the black market isn't even you know well it is but even without considering sort of the role of the the prices and the taxes and what the legal weed is selling for the the risks in the black market production have come down in the last few decades um i couldn't agree with that more and, and as a result the costs come down the cost of entry comes is lower and so there's less of a risk premium on that behavior and that's one of the reasons that the price is, is lower um you know for all sorts of workers and you, you know coming at this from the perspective of just like agriculture being a farmer is not a well-paid job anywhere for anybody uh, i mean except if you're farming you know an illegal drug and the only reason that you're sort of well paid for that it's not because you're farming it's because of the legal risk that you're taking and we're in this weird transition now that like you know a lot of commercial outfits are, are still able to get like pretty high prices relative to the cost of production i mean most most farms can't sell their product for 10 percent more than the production cost I mean, if they can get 10% more than their raw product, their total production costs, they consider that like a huge win for most agricultural production. And, you know, commercial farm, commercial cannabis farms are getting like five, six times the, their production costs back in some time points. And certainly, you know, black market growers have been used to being able to get five, six times their production um, costs back from the sale of their product. That's just not normal. That's just not how plants trade in our economy. There's no other plants that sort of trade for that premium above their production costs, you know, unless there's a legal risk. Hey, Doc, do they grow any other agricultural products indoors? Under light? In some like, places, only where energy is cheap. Lettuces, they do yeah. a lot of a lot of indoor vegetable horticulture in Iceland, for example. Um, because they have geothermal electricity and they don't have a lot of sun. So they actually produce a, a crap ton of fruits and vegetables in Iceland um, under, you know, hydroponic conditions and our artificial lighting. Right. Um, it's not uh, excessive amounts of money, right? Yeah, because of cheap energy. There's, there is some in Europe, um, but it's limited more by energy there. There's really not a lot in the United States. I mean, I'm talking to to lighting manufacturers, they basically don't even consider the other crops that, I mean, it's all cannabis. <laughs> yeah. The other crops yeah. that people might be buying these lights for is probably, you know, 1% of their market. 
So, yeah, you know what? I would say to all the cultivators that want to continue, you just got to quadruple production and half, oh, yeah. half the cost. And you might be, you might be all right. That's all. Done. But you got to come to that realization, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I want to respond real quick. Uh, so you're right. There, there is more niche because it's indoors. That is a very big variable, you know? So it's, there is a few little, you know, quirks to this that, you know, it's, it's also here. I'll say something else. Hey, you're right about the, the farmers over getting screwed for a little while. That's right. And uh, let's see how this let's let's wait till we have this conversation a year from now, because I think there's going to be a realization real quick that uh, farmers are a little bit more essential than people think. And uh, I think there's going to be a little bit of a little tightening of farmers the are, when it comes to the food market. And it, I think historically. They're totally yeah, important and totally always underpaid. You're I mean, right. Yeah, I, I agree. Historically, I historically you enslaved. My point is that they're the underpaid. I, no, I, I, I'm a, I'm 100 yeah. agreeing, and I, I, I'm, and you know, I love doing this show, and I can't wait to have the same conversation next spring <laughs> yeah. because I think this winter is going to be a little tougher on the when it comes to food and, uh, you know, from everything that I've been seeing and stuff, and you know how it goes. There could be a bunch of. Uh, FOMO yeah. out there, but uh, we'll see. No, there we'll are see. there are major production issues with wars going on, in yeah, um, and, absolutely, and drought and climate change and, and other issues. We're not just, we're not heading towards a surplus crop here. That's that's for well, sure. Guess, you know, Doctor Coco, you out here, guys. Real quick. Oh yeah, that's that's My true. That's true. Gotta, yeah, so I'm gonna sneak out the back door. But <laughs> thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for this, guys. It was awesome. This was a great one. I love this one a lot. I'm gonna go back and listen to this one again. Yeah, uh, this was a fun show. Yeah, this is really I agree. Nice. I really enjoyed it. And thanks, chat. I couldn't even, I was, I'll, I'll admit it, I was absorbed in the conversation a lot and I missed a lot of chat. So that's another reason I might have to come back through and see what I missed in chat. I'm sorry if I missed the comment. Even if you tagged me, I may have missed you. I'm sorry. But I love you guys anyway. And uh, Grower's Love, we'll see you guys next week. Oh, I'm going on Michigan Grow's Grow Show. I don't know who the hell's coming on, but I'll be there. <laughs> Grower Love, Spartan. Grower's Take love, it easy, guys. man. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'll say this, like his, and I'm sure Dr. Coco, you probably know some anthropological examples, but like historically, uh, farmers, yeah, it's, it's maybe even mild to say that they don't have it the best. Um, usually, in a lot of cases, and I wouldn't expect that an emergency situation would be very much different nowadays. In fact, in some cases, maybe more egregious and worse. But if you only have a limited food supply, then some sort of entity or groups of entities are going to vie for the control over that for economic reasons, for just simple logistical reasons, for health reasons. Um, so not to sound doom or gloom or, or anything, I'm not predicting anything, but like if something like that happens, uh, that spiral is quick. Uh, and um, I'm just very, I'm just familiar with some of the things that people do in those emergency situations, just from like, you know, just past experiences and, 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 and collegiate classes and things like that. It's yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's a little bit well of a rant. But. Insulated from, uh, you know, a lot of global food supply issues because we're a very we're rich country and we're really world, rich consumers. Yeah. So the price may go yeah. up a little bit when the price goes up a little bit, you know, we may complain, but it's probably going to be less than what the price of gas has gone up. But in, in a lot of places, when the price of food goes up, people literally starve. You know, malnutrition is still the leading cause of death. Um, and 
yeah, there's, there's, it's a, a cruel hard world out there, even when you're not going to be necessarily facing it ourselves. So I don't think by next spring we'll necessarily feel um, many of the effects of, of a global food sort of shortage, uh, other than potentially higher prices. Um, but other places, those higher prices will mean they can't eat anymore. And, you know, a bunch of food ends up comes from the United States, too. And we ship sure. it elsewhere at discounted prices, which drives a lot of farmers elsewhere out of business, actually, in the long term. But when we stop those PL 580 programs, the, the program that buys up surplus grains from farmers and sells it at discount rates overseas, um, which we do to sort of protect our, our domestic market, that has huge sort of effects on grain prices in places in Africa and places in Asia. Um, can really create those kinds of problems. I'm off cannabis now, though, so never mind. Back to cannabis. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that what you just said, remind, I know that that happened a lot in India uh, uh, recently, but um, I, I, I want to ask this question, too. Maybe this could be the last question for the panel. Um, but uh, I know that in the past, there were some movements to destroy basically all the cannabis in North America, or at least in the United States of America, um, using various ways, like the feral plants out there. Um, do you think we might see a, a, a reignition of that sort of directive, but coming from the effect of like people being afraid of like their crops getting pollinated or some sort of other commercial uh, entity, like, you know, cause the feral, feral plants in other agricultural contexts can actually be problematic. Um, that's it. Thoughts. I mean, that would be a question I would throw to you, Matthew. Uh, <laughs> I have an opinion. Yeah, I would. Your opinion? I, well, probably... before you say yours, Matthew, yeah, I would it. hope and think that uh, they tried it and failed, right? Yeah, I mean, it barely didn't even be, it wasn't even really tried because of the gargantuan effort and resources that it would take. Like there was a, there was an example in my cannabis cultivation myths video uh, on my channel uh, where they were trying to like, I think it was a fusarium species that they were trying to like airdrop everywhere surreptitiously um, that would like go after the, the cannabis in particular and be very virulent. But like, first of all, they found it on cannabis. They think that they had had to cultivate it on cannabis um, and there were other like just logistical problems with just transportation and creation. It was just not worth it. It was just literally not worth it. Um, now that there's a legal way to get a bunch of money from cultivation, maybe that would make sense. But honestly, a lot of ex extermination. Um, I mean, we could we can't even get the spot lanternfly under control. So I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Uh I have a question for you, Doc. Um, what's your opinion? If, if you were a, I, I don't know you if, personally on that level, but are you, if you were a gambling man, what yeah. would you set, what would you set the line for when cannabis is treated like oranges and, and avocados? What would your line be? Would it be 10 years, 20 years? I don't know if it ever will. I mean, uh, that, that's part of the point. problem because I see moneyed interests that are entrenching <laughs> now to protect the, the price regime, um, which, and the tax regime, right? I, I, so mm -hmm. I, I don't know that it, it, it ever will. Um, they can also, 
you know, there the government's had an interest to to restrict licensing or to to sort of Hank. monitor that restrict overall supplies too. So, um, and those same desires to control everything is one of the reasons that one of the more benevolent, I mean, for lack of a better word, reasons to potentially control home grow. Um, as opposed to like the malevolent reasons of just wanting to like make more money for yourself. But yeah, I I don't, I don't think we're going to get to start treating cannabis like soybeans and, and producing it at that kind of scale. For something they can alter you as much as cannabis can to be as banal as, as oranges is a sort of a trick answer to your question. I think it would require a lot of changes in how we view psychedelics in general, which we're seeing a lot of lately. Um, but I think that would have to sort of sustain in the cultural consciousness for a while, probably multiple decades, if that were to happen at all. Um, but as far as things like hemp and that sort of thing, I think I could resurge within my lifetime. <laughs> That's not a very good range, I suppose, um, especially with medical technology getting better, I hope. <laughs> yeah. I do think it's going to, it's going to moderate, but I, you know, I, I end up thinking that the price of, of cannabis is going to be sort of set more by the law rather than the market. Um, and, you know, as any economist will tell you, um, that creates weird, weird problems or weird issues happening in different parts of the market. And one of those issues, which is probably going to persist it would be, you know, the, the space for a black market, um, whether you want to consider, you know, all home growers sort of part of that or not, though, or depends on sort of how you're viewing the world in that market. What do you think, though, Noah? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I, I had had it in that 10, 20 years, but I, I did agree with Doc. I, I, I I don't know, man. It's, and I also loved your point. I mean, it, this is a, this is a very powerful thing. You know, this is not soybeans. This is something big. So, and, and I think that everyone that's on this panel understands it, but I think there's a lot of people that genuinely don't understand how big the cannabis market, the cannabis affects just the entire, how it's, you know, people that are really seriously into it, it's a lifestyle. So it's, it's so much, even maybe even bigger than, I mean, I guess there's some pretty big wine heads and, you know, especially beer guys and scotch, whatever, but cannabis, the people that are into it tend to be very enthusiastic. So it's, it's very interesting. And I would have set the line at over 10 years, but I could see a scenario where like Doc is saying, where it just flat out never happens. Or like with hemp, for example, especially, you know, versus like the, the, um, you know, other chemotypes out there. And, you, you know, you guys both raised an interesting point that it's always sort of rubbed me a little bit wrong in the legalization side of cannabis when people are like, it's just a plant, you can't legalize. It's like, but it's a damn special plant. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's not like any other plant. That's um, why we like it so much after all. Uh, that's absolutely <laughs> why we like it so much, right? But I, there are I'm saying this about dandelions yeah and and i'm personally not sort of of the camp that thinks that you would need to regulate that especially through a prohibition regime but um i i think that that needs to be at least part of the conversation that we're having here because it is a, a 
peculiar and wonderful plant. Yeah, somebody in the chat uh, said that uh, psychedelic substances probably will never be unregulated. And um, I, I provisionally agree with that statement. I think that, um, so the, I mean, there are some people who are sensitive to some compounds that are over the counter. And I mean, they're still regulated, I suppose. But yeah, not that I agree necessarily with that premise, but um, it is kind of hard to imagine and here, here's a, a little bit of sort of prehistory and, and a little bit of anthropology for you. You know, intoxicating and hallucinatory substances were known to virtually every um, civilization, every culture on the planet. And they almost all enjoyed them. The only examples that we have of cultures that didn't have an intoxicatory or, or didn't use one is because they lived on an island in the South Pacific that literally didn't have anything that was a suitable candidate to make into a hallucinatory or intoxicating substance. Um, it wasn't regulated until around the 14th century. It's the drug use wasn't regulated anywhere um, legally. In every society around the world, they, you know, in every sort of small scale culture, they regulate the use of these things socially. Um, they're used for, for specific purposes and, and at specific times. And, you know, like all behavior is sort of regulated socially differently like that. Um, so even in like the small scale societies, right, where you know, use was common, reserved often for rituals or something. It was still regulated. Um, That's a good it point. Wasn't, it wasn't banished. Um, and we don't have society anymore that we can sort of regulate effectively socially like that. Um, and that's why we have a bunch of these laws and regulations and everything else. Um, it's increasingly problematic at larger scales when you have like millions and millions of people that all have to agree on sort of guidelines for this. Um, and that's, that's sort of what we're facing, I guess. But yeah, I, I expect it will always be sort of regulated to some extent. Um, yeah. And I didn't even, I think even know where that was entirely going when I started, but it was hopefully interesting and it was definitely perspicacious. So now we should do our shout outs. Jack is here um, and he will be closing us out and we should respect his time. So I'm going to go first and say I really enjoyed hosting. I really liked the bevy of, of questions we got from the panel and also some interesting ones from the chat. If you want to learn more about pests and plant health and ecology and that sort of a thing and how you can grow in a conscientious way, you can find me on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol zenthanol.com for professional inquiries and consultation regarding pests. And you can also find me on my Instagram and YouTube or Instagram and Twitter at SyncAngel. Dr. MJ. Excellent. Yeah, I was, I'm like, should I just jump in here? Or should I wait for him to call my name or somebody else's name? This was a lot of fun, Matthew. You did a wonderful job as host. Um, short staffed today, but I, you know, have been reading some of the comments, not exactly participating in the chat, but I think the, the audience enjoyed the show today. I thought it was awesome and, and really enjoyed getting into some of the topics that we were able to get into. So let me run quickly through the, the bevy of things that I've got going on. In about half an hour, I'm going on the Berkshire Bud YouTube channel to do the New Year's Grow Challenge End of Grow Awards. Um, the actual winners are chosen by like the California State Lottery when they chose their draw number. So that'll happen and we're gonna announce the winners and do a little live show this evening. 
Um, tomorrow at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, I'm doing a part test premiere for the Atrium Hydra 3200. I'm doing a giveaway during that premiere. So show up to the my Dr. MJ Coco YouTube channel. And after that premiere, we're going to go over to the Hemp with Gigi channel to do a live after show with Mike Lynn, the founder of Atrium Lighting. And then on Wednesday is 420. And we are starting the, the Spring Autoflower Challenge with a special live show on the Smot Poker YouTube channel. And everybody's dropping seeds for the Spring Autoflower Challenge. So sign up for that on cocoforcannabis.com forward slash challenge and join us on the Smot Poker YouTube channel for the show on Wednesday night. That's a lot. So I'll shut up now. I'm Dr. MJ Coco from cocoforcannabis.com. Noah, what's up? Oh hey, uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm Noah the Groa, and uh, you can find me on Instagram there with two E's. And uh, most weeks here, I'm going to be in Las Vegas this next Sunday. But uh, I'm thinking I'm, I've been meaning to go live from there when I'm there, and I'm I'm thinking I'm going to try. So uh, I did it here on Easter, and uh, I've been having such a blast with all you guys. I had such a great time today, and um, so the legalization stuff. That's a you know, I, I know how to grow a little bit. So I'm trying to kind of branch out in others, other areas and that legalization. It's funny. I've been really kind of debating all this stuff in my head the last week. So it was really interesting to get it with everybody. I'm, I'm actually going to try and bring up the opinion of, of the question that I asked to the rest of the panel and that's all here, but I had a great time. Thanks for hosting sync angel. And uh, yeah, I'll see everybody next week. Thanks a lot. And, uh, Tao, where can we find you? Matthew, thanks for hosting tonight. And thanks for Jack and MJ Coco, Spartan, and Noah the Groa, and everyone else who didn't make it. Um, it's always a great, intriguing discussion, no matter uh, who shows up or where the conversation meanders. And uh, yeah, I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Keens on the IG. Uh, if you search the American one, I'm the little guy with the American top hat on the IG. So yeah, that's where you can find me and, um, peace out to everyone. Happy holidays. And we'll see you next week. First love. Yeah. Is that it? Are we done? Is there a sign off? Is there a Jack? Is there a Jack? Is there a Jack? Is it all over? It's all over guys. I think that's all right, it. Have a good week. Catch you next week. Right. Peace and love. Jack Green Sox signing out.